Before we begin, I'd like to offer a warning. This episode discusses a mass shooting event. According to a 2015 article in Smithsonian.com, although the United States only represents about 5% of the population on the planet, we are home to almost 33% of the world's mass shooters over a more than 60-year period between the mid-60s to 2012. Mass shooters could also be called mass murderers, which the Federal Bureau of Investigation defines the phrase mass murderers as someone who kills four or more people during a single incident. Mass murderers aren't the same as spree killers. A spree killer or killers certainly kill more than one person, usually two or more, but not necessarily within the same incident, and usually have what the FBI describes as little to no cooling off period between murders. These definitions, they make my brain hurt. But I imagine if you're in law enforcement or the criminal justice system, the variances between the types of people who kill others are quite important, especially when profiling these individuals to identify suspects, behavioral patterns, and better understand their motives. One of the first mass shootings in the United States occurred in Chester, Pennsylvania, not far from the city of Philadelphia on November 7, 1948. Melvin Collins was a 38-year-old man living in a rundown apartment building. He'd only arrived in Pennsylvania about a week before the shooting on October 31st from his home in Exmoor, Virginia. Why he moved outside of Philadelphia wasn't actually clear. He'd sent his belongings ahead of him and took up residence in an apartment building on Market Street in Chester. According to his family, he'd been in some trouble in Virginia. His nickname was Bad Boy Collins due to his run-ins with the law, fighting, and shootings. It's possible he fled Exmoor to avoid incarceration for his crimes in Virginia. According to a 1948 report in the Delaware County Daily Times, yes, that paper was pretty popular 70 years ago, the Chester and Pennsylvania State Police claimed they didn't know why Melvin Collins randomly shot anyone who passed his line of sight. But neighbors told a very different story. Collins was a gambler. He liked to bet numbers, which isn't all that different from the daily lottery so many residents play every day in America. If you're not familiar with betting numbers, just walk into any American convenience store or grocery store, and you'll see the daily number, the pick four, the lotto, mega millions. Basically, it means you make a guess on a series of numbers that will be selected on a particular day. Back in the 40s, this sort of betting was illegal, but today it's an enormous industry. One of Melvin's neighbors, a widow named Essie Pernsley told the Daily Times that everyone in the area knew the shootings started because of numbers. During his short time in Chester, Pennsylvania, Melvin Collins got paired up with a young man named Edward Boyer. Ed ran the numbers game in Chester, along with a number of other people. And one night, he forgot to place Melvin's bet. That was it. He forgot to bet Melvin's Collins numbers, a bet that was only 50 cents. And that made him victim number one. On November 7th in 1948, Melvin Collins barricaded himself in his apartment after shooting Ed Boyer and shot six more people from his apartment window. One of his victims was Essie's husband, Detective Ellery Persley. Reading the news about this mass shooting made my head hurt, partly because it was absolutely senseless. Melvin Collins shot seven people because an associate of his failed to place a 50-cent bet. He was called a sharpshooter because from his apartment window, he managed to shoot and kill the barber in his shop across the street with just one bullet. Collins wasn't messing around. He demonstrated deadly accuracy and he used dum-dum bullets, which were designed to expand upon impact and cause the greatest amount of damage possible. 
This story also troubled me because for at least the first day or two, it seemed as if the police had no real clue about everyone who'd been shot. One victim was first identified as a 27-year-old man, then they thought it was a 50-year-old man, or it could have been a 7-year-old child. Everything about this story, from Melvin's motive to the victims to the case management, just seemed scattered. And that's probably due to the newness of this sort of a crime. There really was no protocol to handle a mass shooter. Nor was he arrested, tried, or convicted for these crimes. Because once he expelled his rage, Melvin Collins committed suicide. This is not an episode about gun control, nor is it an episode about Melvin Collins. He was the first mass shooter in the Philadelphia area, but he isn't the man society, law enforcement, and the press call the father of mass murder. That moniker belongs to a 28-year-old man named Howard Unruh, who on the morning of September 6, 1949, shot 16 people in about 15 minutes killing 13 and severely injuring three others. This was less than a year after Melvin Collins' tirade of bullets ripped through a Chester neighborhood. And much like what happened in 1948, the police in Camden were ill-equipped to deal with a mass murder of this scale. Also like Melvin Collins, Howard Unruh's reasons for taking his 9mm Luger on a shooting spree were minuscule in comparison to his crimes. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this twisted journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Philly. Philly. Howard. Yes, this is Howard. What's the last name of the party you want? I'm a friend, and I want to know what they're doing to you. Well, they haven't done anything to me yet, but I'm doing plenty to them. How many have you killed? I don't know yet. I I haven't counted them, but it looks like a pretty good score. Why are you killing people? I don't know. I, I can't answer that yet. I'm too busy. I'll talk to you later. A couple of friends are coming to get me. What you just heard was a reenactment of a phone interview between Courier-Post reporter Philip Buxton and Howard Unruh on September 6, 1948, while Howard was in his apartment with his guns, waiting for the police to arrest him. Buxton looked up the phone number on record for the Unruh residence where Howard lived with his mother on River Avenue in East Camden. Basically, he looked in the white pages, found the killer's phone number, and said, hey, I'm going to give him a call and see if he answers. Buxton believed the friends Howard referred to were the police, because once you've barricaded yourself inside your home while it's surrounded with police, who else is really coming to visit you? Howard Unruh was a veteran who joined the Army in 1942 when he was 21 years old. He served as a private first class, a tank gunner, and was honorably discharged in 1945. Sure, as you can probably guess with stories like these, people said Howard tended to stick to himself. He was very skilled at his positions in the military. There were never any complaints from his fellow enlisted men or his superior officers. In fact, he received a few commendations during his time in the Army. Howard Unruh, his mother, and his younger brother lived in East Camden's Kramer Hill neighborhood. 
His father, Sam, left the family when Howard was young, which was likely hard on his mother becoming the sole provider and caregiver for two boys. Howard wasn't any trouble, really, as a child or as a teenager. His hobbies were what you might call quiet ones, like stamp collecting. He was also devoutly religious. He regularly attended a nearby evangelical Lutheran church, and unlike other kids, he didn't go out of obligation or because his mother forced him to. Howard was an avid Bible reader, and this commitment to religion eventually became a source of great conflict for him as he grew older. In his high school yearbook, Howard indicated he wanted to work for the government, and clearly, during his time in the Army, he did. But once he finished his term serving in the military, he wasn't quite sure what to do with himself. A few years after returning home, Howard Unruh enrolled in Temple University's School of Pharmacy. He moved to an apartment in Philadelphia and spent a great deal of time away from his home in Camden. It was during this time Howard began to open up about his sexuality. Howard was gay, something he hid from himself for a time, as well as his family for a very long time. I think the saddest part of Howard's life in the 30s and 40s wasn't just that society wouldn't accept him as a gay man, but homosexuality was illegal. In fact, in the state of New Jersey, sodomy was considered a capital crime until 1978. Forty years ago, people were subject to arrest and even incarceration for having a physical relationship that may have included oral or anal sex. Although Howard spent the better part of 1948 living in Philadelphia, he still spent some time at home on the weekends with his mother on River Avenue. It really was a bit of a dual life. In Philadelphia, he was a college student, sure, a little older than many of the other students, but still a young man. He had freedoms that he didn't have just over the bridge in New Jersey. Homosexuality was also illegal in Pennsylvania. It wasn't decriminalized here until 1972, so earlier than Jersey, but still very much illegal in 1948. But in a bigger city, there was a community for Howard. It was underground. Gay men and women couldn't love openly during that time, and sadly, here we are 70 years later, when rights for members of the LGBTQ community are still at risk. But at least Howard Unruh in Philadelphia had an opportunity to meet other gay men. People who understood him. Even people who understood his personal struggle reconciling his sexual orientation with his religion. At some point in 1949, Howard dropped out of Temple University, but he kept the apartment in Philly for a time. It enabled him a sense of privacy living on his own, even if it was just for a few days a week. His space in Philly was more of a sanctuary than his home in East Camden, where people thought he was a bit odd. Neighbors likely suspected Howard was gay. A 28-year-old handsome young man, a war veteran, seemingly intelligent and able-bodied. Why wasn't he married? Going to college after the war wasn't necessarily unheard of, but his younger brother married shortly after returning home from the military and then moved out of the apartment he shared with Howard and their mother. Why was Howard still living at home, being supported by his mother Frida? People gossiped. They glanced at Howard with a side eye, wondering if their suspicions were true. And then there was one particular neighbor a pharmacist named Morris Cohen, whose first-floor drugstore and second-floor apartment were adjacent to Howard's home. Howard and his mother lived on a second-floor apartment above a vacant shop. On the corner at 3200 was the River Avenue drugstore on the first floor. Behind and above it, a similar apartment to Howard's, where Morris Cohen lived with his wife Rose, their son Charles, and his mother. The only entrance to Howard's apartment was through the back, but the yards behind his property and the drugstore were fenced in. Howard's yard had no gate access to the street that ran behind the properties, but there was a gate in the fence between his yard and Morris Cohen's yard. 
Howard would constantly ask permission to use the gate to cut through the yard behind the pharmacy and then exit that yard through another gate in a back fence. It sounds rather convoluted, and it was, because Howard Unruh seemed to feel like Morris Cohen held the gate over his head. Neighborly disputes can be brutal. We learned about just how brutal fights between neighbors can be in Episode 8, when I shared the story of Ann Hoover, who lived in the Oakland Park section of Pittsburgh. Ann was murdered by her neighbor Roy Kirk because of frequent disputes over the condition of his property adjacent to hers. If you haven't yet listened to that episode, it's pretty disturbing, so be warned. While from Morris Cohen's perspective, the issues with Howard Unruh using his gate may not have seemed very serious, they were a very big deal to Howard. Sometimes Morris wouldn't grant Howard access through his yard, and that forced Howard to walk about a block in the other direction down to 33rd Street and then up the block to River Avenue. When I think about a situation like that, I'd prefer to take that route anyway. I'd rather not feel beholding to someone for access through their property and walking a block and a half while it really isn't a significant journey. But to Howard, it might as well have been 20 miles because he had to walk through high weeds, dirt-filled, unkempt, vacant lots. He perceived this as a personal affront. There were other neighbors Howard felt had wronged him, someone he believed repeatedly dumped trash in his yard, and he claimed another neighbor laid fresh topsoil that clogged the plumbing in Howard and his mother's apartment. Whatever happened around the 3200 block of River Avenue was done, at least in Howard's mind, with intent, and that intent was to make Howard Unruh's life miserable. Howard had very few outlets in his life for these feelings of despair. When he was in East Camden, he kept to himself as much as possible. He doggedly read his Bible while spending hours in his bedroom, a space that was decorated with memorabilia from the war, including guns, machetes, and bayonets. In the basement of his home, Howard Unruh set up a mini shooting range. He had a target about two feet square, and behind it, he'd padded the walls of the basement with layer after layer of newspaper, perhaps to muffle the sound or catch the bullets that went through the target. Howard Unruh was an incredibly good shot. His training in the Army served him well during the war, and he was considered an excellent marksman. I can understand someone who developed those skills wanting to practice at a shooting range, but setting up a target in your basement, attempting to soundproof that space, that's a little different. It sounds sinister, as if you don't want anyone to know you're maintaining your shooting abilities. What was all that practice for? Sadly, the Camp Hill community in East Camden soon found out. Throughout 1949, Howard traveled between Philadelphia and East Camden. No, he was no longer attending classes at Temple, but he was trying to live a more authentic life, which must have been impossible for men and women at that time who were gay. In the summer of 49, Howard met someone. It was a relatively new relationship, but it was probably exciting for Howard. Think about those first days and weeks when you connect with someone. The butterflies you get in your stomach, the way your heart beats a little faster at the idea of seeing him or her. Howard was dating someone in Philadelphia, but still begrudgingly called East Camden home. Camden was the land of scrutiny and that damn gate in the Cohen's yard, the one that made it impossible for him to come and go whenever he wanted without being seen or questioned or judged. In September 1949, Howard decided he'd had enough of druggist Morris Cohen and his damn gate. 
He asked a friend to help him cut away a section in the back of the fence that surrounded his yard. Howard and his friend then made and installed a gate. Why he hadn't considered this sooner was anybody's guess, but suddenly he felt as if he had freedom. He could get in and out of his yard and ultimately his home with ease. Never again would he have to rely on his annoying neighbors or walk the extra blocks through dirty, overgrown lots to get around the block to River Avenue. Howard's joy was short-lived. On Monday, September 5th, 1949, Howard headed to Philadelphia. He had a date with a gentleman friend that he'd been seeing. But even in 1949, traffic between Jersey and Philly was brutal. Camden is mere minutes from Philadelphia. It's literally over a bridge, but it was a holiday. People were driving to and from the shore, either ending their vacation or just beginning one. And it took Howard much longer to get into the city than he'd expected. The plan was to meet his date at a movie theater on Market Street in a very busy part of Philadelphia. They'd watch a movie or two and then enjoy some time alone later. But Howard was so late. By the time he arrived, his friend was gone. Maybe his date thought Howard stood him up. Or maybe he no longer wanted to spend time with Howard Unruh. Any number of negative scenarios flowed through Howard's paranoid mind while he angrily brooded in the theater before returning home around 3 a.m. Tuesday morning. As if that evening hadn't been bad enough, when Howard approached the back of his property where he lived, he realized someone ripped down the gate he'd only recently installed. That was it. Years of feeling wronged welled up inside Howard like a volcano. Later, he told authorities he didn't sleep when he returned home. He couldn't. He stayed up for hours thinking of each of his neighbors he believed attacked him in one way or another. He thought of ways he could retaliate and make them pay for what they'd done. Around 8 a.m. that morning, shortly after his mother made his breakfast, Howard Unruh threatened her with a wrench. Yeah, that seems random. And if you were Frida standing in the kitchen with a plate of eggs and bacon, it would have felt random as fuck and scary. Through her fear, she managed to ask Howard, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And then she ran from the house. She fled to a neighbor, afraid her son had a breakdown. Howard did have a breakdown of sorts. His patience with the world and everyone he believed hurt him in some way broke down. He took his 9mm Luger handgun, plus over 30 rounds of ammunition, shoved the bullets into the pockets of his summer weight suit, straightened his bow tie, and headed out onto River Avenue to show the world just how broken he'd become. Howard Unruh left through his rear yard, turned down 32nd Street, and began shooting. I want to share a warning. I'm going to take you through Howard Unruh's actions on the morning of September 6, 1949. We will follow his path of destruction, which spread across three blocks in the Camp Hill neighborhood of East Camden, New Jersey. This is going to be hard to hear, it's going to be hard for me to share, but his victims deserve to have their names shared. His victims deserve you to know the senseless, selfish actions that ended their lives in a split second. If this is a trigger for you or something that you are not inclined to listen to, then I encourage you to skip ahead for five to ten minutes until we are past this point in the episode. Howard's first target was a man in a bread truck, a man delivering bread, not one of Howard Unruh's neighbors. Roxy DeMarco just finished a delivery to a cafe across the street from the drugstore on the corner when he heard kids screaming about a man with a gun. 
In an interview Mr. DeMarco gave to the Camden Evening Courier the day of the shooting, he said he grabbed those kids off the street and put them in his truck. He then saw women frantically running around looking for their children and realized he had their kids in his truck, which was a good thing. It probably saved their lives. Based on what Roxy DeMarco saw that day, he claimed Howard Unruh was not shooting long range or randomly. He told reporters almost every shot he saw Unruh make was at close range. From there, Howard doubled back down 32nd Street and approached a barber shop next door to the vacant store under his apartment. Through the window, he could see six-year-old Aris Smith. Little Aris was getting his hair cut for his first day of school on Wednesday, the very next day. Clark Hoover, who owned and operated the barber shop, made sure children were comfortable getting their hair cut, something many little children dread. Clark had a white rocking horse installed where a chair would normally be. And it was on this horse that Aris sat for his first haircut. Howard Unruh sent one bullet into Clark Hoover, killing him almost instantly, and then fired at the little boy with the same result. Clark Hoover was victim number one. Six-year-old Oris Smith was number two. A cobbler worked next door to the barbershop, 27-year-old John Pilarchik, about the same age as Howard. John heard the bullets. He heard screams from people outside on River Avenue, and he hid behind a counter, but it did no good. Howard entered the shop, found John behind the counter, and shot him. John Pillarchik was victim number three. Howard left the cobbler's shop. Three victims had done nothing to sate his rage. And his next stop, as if the first three victims weren't bad enough, was absolutely heartbreaking. Mary Hamilton lived next door to the cobbler. She was eight months pregnant, already a mom of three. Her children were playing in the front room of her house at 3208 River Avenue when Howard Unruh passed before her window. Mary knew what was coming. She tried to get her children into another room, one that Howard couldn't see through their front window, but she was eight months pregnant, rushing to grab three small children, and it just, it just didn't work. Mary and two of her children survived, but her youngest, two-year-old Thomas, was struck by Howard Unruh's bullet that smashed through their living room window. Thomas Hamilton was victim number four. Killing two children had no impact on him whatsoever. He was fueled by selfish, paranoid rage. He left the Hamilton house and walked further up River Avenue to a tailor and dry cleaner shop run by a husband and wife. According to Camden County Police, Howard really wanted to shoot Tom Zagrino, but only found his wife in the shop, 28-year-old Helga, so he killed her instead. Helga Zagrino was victim number five. And here's where it starts to get confusing. I found varying reports of his next moves, actually varying reports before and after little Thomas Hamilton was murdered. And I'm not surprised because this was complete chaos. It was, it was sheer terror. A crime like this had never been heard of in the United States. For someone to just walk out of their house with a gun and randomly kill people, no matter what the FBI calls this type of crime, the residents and business people in East Camden called it hell. They were in hell that morning on September 6th, and it wouldn't end until nine more people were shot. I'm focusing on what was shared in the Camden Evening Courier Post, 
They were the first reporters on the scene with police. They spoke to more witnesses and survivors than anyone else. And from what I read, it feels like their reporting tried to make sense out of something completely fucking senseless. But the order I'm about to continue with may not be the exact order that these events actually occurred. According to the report in the Evening Courier, after leaving Zagrino's shop, Howard Unruh walked back to the corner of 32nd and River Avenue. He was headed for the drugstore and the home of Mars Cohen, the pharmacist, with whom Howard consistently fought over that damn gate. Before he made his way inside, Howard shot a 45-year-old man named James Hutton, an insurance agent, who walked out of the drugstore as Howard attempted to enter. They all but bumped into one another, and at first James said, excuse me, as one usually does when you're passing through a door while another person is attempting to pass at the same time. Then he saw the gun, but there was nowhere for him to go. Howard Unruh was just too close, and he killed James Hutton with one bullet. About Hutton, Howard Unruh was quoted as saying, I shot him once, then stepped over him and went into the store. James Hutton was believed to be the sixth victim of Howard's rampage. The drugstore was Howard's prime target. It was Morris Cohen's business. Above and behind the business was Morris's home, which he shared with his wife, Rose, his mother, Minnie, and his 12-year-old son, Charles. The Cohens ran from the storefront into their apartment rooms. They fled up the stairs. Rose hid in a closet while her mother-in-law, Minnie, called the police. But no amount of hiding or calls for help would save them. Howard Unruh shot through the closet door three times and killed Rose Cohen where she hid. Minnie was shot while attempting to contact police, and Morris was shot trying to escape the apartment. Howard caught him on a porch roof behind the house, fired on him, and Morris Cohen fell to the street below. That left 12-year-old Charles Cohen. One report I found said he screamed for help out a second-floor window. Howard looked at him and left the apartment, sparing his life, but that was not true. 12-year-old Charles Cohen spoke with the Philadelphia Inquirer about what happened to him that morning. He told them his mother put him in a closet, a different one than where she went and hid. And that's probably what saved his life. Charles Cohen told reporters, I lay in the closet until I didn't hear any more shooting. When I tried to open the door, I couldn't. I started to suffocate. I pushed and kicked until I forced open the door. Then I ran downstairs, out the side. The police were there, and they put me in their car. By the time Howard Unruh left the Cohen's residence, the victim count was up to nine, and he still wasn't done. Outside the drugstore, Howard fired shots into a car stopped at a traffic light, killing two women, Helen Wilson and her mother, Emma Matlack. He severely injured Helen's nine-year-old son, John, who rode in the back of the car. Why? Why kill any of these people but random strangers? Howard Unruh made a case about the way he'd been treated by his neighbors. But so many of the people he killed weren't residents of River Avenue. In fact, some of them didn't even live in East Camden. And I'm not saying the way the community treated him or perhaps his perception of how they treated him, because that is not a reason to kill people. In Howard's mind, there were specific targets. He wasn't absolutely sure who the culprits were for some of these perceived injustices. So he told police in an interview later that day he decided to kill all of his neighbors to make sure he got the right ones. But he didn't just kill his neighbors. Helen Wilson and her mother were just stopped at a traffic light and then their lives were over. 
And sadly, Helen's son, John, who was shot in the neck, did not survive his injuries. Helen, Emma, and John were victims number 10, 11, and 12. Police weren't sure if that car was Howard's last attack or if Alvin Day, another motorist he shot and killed when Howard fired through his car window, was the last person murdered. He certainly wasn't done shooting, but anyone else caught in his crosshairs survived. Howard Unruh killed 13 people on the morning of September 6, 1948. A mother and son, 16-year-old Armand Harris and his mother Maddie, who lived further north up 32nd Street, just a little ways up the street from the drugstore, were injured when Howard fired on them. He shot into Engel's Cafe, the spot where he attempted to murder Roxy DeMarco, the bread delivery guy, and by some miracle, no one in the cafe was hit. An 18-year-old boy named Charles Peterson, who lived a few blocks away, was struck by one of Howard's stray bullets, but he survived. Sixteen victims in all. Three survived, and 13 died almost instantly. All because Charles Unruh was pissed off about a fucking gate. Now, we know there is more to it than that. This was not a spur-of-the-moment killing, regardless of how Howard reacted to that gate being ripped down. The gate may have been the final act that convinced Howard in his paranoid mind he had to take action, but this was absolutely premeditated. Not just in the dark hours of Tuesday morning when Howard couldn't sleep because he obsessed over the people in his community that he believed had somehow wronged him. He'd thought about this for years, and we'll get into that in a minute or two. Howard had to reload his gun multiple times while he walked River Avenue firing on innocent people. But even with those 33 rounds in his pockets, he eventually ran out of ammunition and had to return home. By the time he arrived at his apartment, his mother was gone. She ran out earlier that morning after Howard threatened her with a wrench. Later, he told police he wanted to kill her to spare her the anguish of what he was about to do. But he couldn't bring himself to kill his own mother. Howard Unruh had been gone less than 20 minutes. Some reports stated his killing spree lasted just 10 minutes. Other reports indicate it took a little longer, but what does that matter? 13 people were dead in less time than it takes to cook dinner. And remember, this was long before the days when semi-automatic weapons became available to the average citizen, before someone could wipe out an entire room full of people in seconds. Based on what I understand about the gun he used, a 9mm Luger, it held eight rounds. Not every bullet was aimed at someone, although those that were almost always hit their mark. Some rounds were fired across the street into the air to increase the fear in Howard's community. The gun was loaded when he left the house, so he probably reloaded four more times with the spare ammunition. He did an unfathomable amount of damage, the likes of which was only seen in war when an enemy was trying to kill you. River Avenue became a war zone that morning, and Howard was the enemy of the people. Howard Unruh barricaded himself in his apartment because every cop in the city, in the county, off-duty cops, dozens and dozens of police officers were sent to the corner of River Avenue and 32nd Street. Howard was ready for them. He immediately fired upon the police from his bedroom, which faced River Avenue. The police returned fire, and they had a shitload more firepower than Howard did. They had riot guns in addition to their handguns and tear gas. 
Two police officers went around the back of the house and climbed up on the roof of the kitchen, which was on the first floor. They tossed canister after canister of tear gas into the Unruh's apartment. And finally, Howard Unruh shouted, don't shoot, I'll come down. There's a photograph of Howard Unruh as he was taken into police custody. He is surrounded by a horde of policemen. He looks shocked and surprised. But it's his attire that surprised me. He wore a suit coat, which was pulled back off his shoulders because his hands were behind his back. But he wore a suit with a crisp white shirt and a bow tie. He looked like he was dressed for church. And I feel like his wardrobe is a telling statement about the time when he committed this massacre. The idea of dressing in dark clothing or camo or some other ensemble intentionally chosen to send a message wasn't part of his agenda. I don't know that it would have been part of anyone's agenda in 1949. Howard Unruh was very forthcoming with Camden police. He admitted everything he did, why he did it, and he told the police he'd been thinking about this for months, maybe even years. Howard Unruh committed multiple counts of premeditated murder and was completely cavalier about what he'd done, demonstrating no remorse, nor did he exhibit any pain from the gunshot wound he sustained while Frank Engel, the cafe owner who was one of the first people to witness Howard's shooting spree. Right after firing on the bread truck, Howard fired towards Frank's cafe. Frank rounded up all of the patrons, ushered them upstairs, then grabbed his own gun and started shooting at Howard from a second floor window above his cafe, not realizing he'd actually shot Howard Unruh, but it wasn't enough to take him down. Howard spent about two hours in an interrogation room before police noticed a pool of blood under his chair. He'd been shot in his rear upper thigh and either didn't mention it or had no idea he'd been shot because of the shock of the morning's activities. Police transferred Howard Unruh to Cooper Hospital, the same hospital where his victims were being treated. The same hospital where nine-year-old John Nelson died as a result of the gunshot wound inflicted on him by Howard. The hospital was filled with family members of the injured and the deceased. Neighbors offering support, residents of River Avenue being treated for shock and hysteria after witnessing what happened earlier that morning. It was like something out of a movie. It was actually worse than what people saw in movies back then. And there was Howard getting a bullet removed from right below his ass. But it couldn't be removed. The bullet was lodged in his bone, and the surgeons told police they had to leave it there. While Howard Unruh was interrogated, about a dozen police officers went through his apartment. They found the shooting range in his basement. They found molds and instruction manuals for bullet making. Apparently, according to the police, Howard made all the bullets he used in his rampage. In his bedroom, they found all the military weaponry, more guns, memorabilia decorating his walls. They found his much-loved and obviously repeatedly read Bible. And next to the Bible was a book about understanding sexual attraction. Howard struggled so much with his sexuality. That's not a reason to kill people. It in no way justifies his actions. But I can't imagine the pain and stress of hiding who you are and whom you love, not only because people will ridicule you, but you'd risk incarceration. Howard was never put on trial for his crimes. The day after the murders, on September 7, 1949, Howard was transferred to the ward for the criminally insane at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. Psychiatrists evaluated and interviewed Howard for weeks, hoping to uncover a diagnosis. 
Supposedly, these physicians agreed unilaterally that Howard was suffering from dementia praecox, mixed type with pronounced catatonic and paranoid coloring, which back in 1949 meant he was a paranoid schizophrenic. But that may not have been his diagnosis. That was sort of an umbrella diagnosis for everything. Seventy years ago, there wasn't as much understanding of mental health issues as there is today. And Lord knows, we still aren't treating people with mental health issues as effectively or respectfully as we could be. Based on that diagnosis, a judge ruled Howard incompetent to stand trial. And on October 20th, 1949, Howard was officially considered committed based on a judge's order. He lived at the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital for 60 years. Howard Unruh confessed and was declared criminally insane. He died in 1988 after being confined to a mental hospital for 60 years. But the troubled young man from East Camden will forever be remembered as the country's first mass murderer in modern times. What's so strange about this is the Camden County prosecutor, Mitchell Cohen, immediately sent Howard to a mental institution. There was no trial or jury to determine Howard's innocence or guilt or find him not guilty by reason of insanity. There was no competency hearing, just the statements of a team of doctors who administered narcosynthesis. That's more commonly known as truth serum. And while in 1949, experts believed it compelled people to tell the truth, we know it also made them hallucinate. So who's to say if what Howard Unruh told these doctors was the truth? Prosecutor Mitchell, who eventually went on to become a federal judge, told the Camden Courier Post 25 years after Howard's killing spree that Howard's gunshot wound went a long way to convince him of Howard's mental issues. In a quote, Mitchell said, What really convinced me he must be terribly insane was when he got up after two hours and his chair was covered in blood. A considerable amount of it. He'd been shot and wasn't even aware of it. You're not a doctor. You're a prosecutor. A prosecutor is supposed to represent the people. I realize we're talking about a crime that occurred 70 years ago, but I simply cannot wrap my head around the idea a prosecutor sent a man who murdered 13 people to a mental institution less than a day after his killing spree. Maybe the outcome of the trial would have been the same. Howard Unruh could have been found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to a psychiatric hospital. Maybe Mitchell believed that and thought he was saving Camden County the pain of reliving those terrifying events through a trial. But not all the doctors who evaluated Howard felt the same way. When I went back and dug deeper through the research I'd conducted, I found out that one psychiatrist on the team working with Howard refused to sign his diagnosis and recommendation for commitment to a mental institution. Dr. W.H. Minford had this to say about Howard Unruh in 1949. If psychiatrists are only to render a report of his sanity as to whether he's capable of standing trial, can I understand the nature of the charge and aid counsel in his defense? Then I believe Unruh can stand trial on the charge. I feel our examinations here should not prelude his appearance in court, no matter what we find. To clap him in a building for the criminally insane too soon would be regarded in some circles as psychiatry coming to the rescue. The trial should be a full dress affair because the public has a stake in law and law enforcement and there are possibilities that the legal and psychiatric practitioners may learn from an unusual and interesting case. After all the evidence is in, let the court and jury find their verdict. I feel Unruh was not near enough unsound mentally to not understand what he was doing, even if murders for revenge or hatred can be termed essentially a paranoid mechanism. 
After the murders, Howard's younger brother blamed his time in the military for Howard's breakdown. He claimed Howard was a quiet young man and believed whatever Howard saw during combat in the war must have changed him. There was an art exhibit a few years ago. I didn't see it in person. I only saw it online. But it featured photographs of enlisted persons, sort of a then and now retrospective. Some of you may have seen it too. The then photographs looked like enlistment photos. And if you're in the military, please forgive me if I'm not using the right term for that photograph. It was a more formal photo of a young man or a young woman in uniform. Some were smiling, some were serious, but you saw hope in their eyes, hope that they were going to make a difference. The second photo of each person was after they left the military. Every photograph told a different story. Some of them were haunting, and in many of those pictures, their hope was gone. Looking at an early photo of Howard when he enlisted in the Army, he looks almost radiant, like he's fulfilling that dream he shared in his high school yearbook of working for the government. The day he was arrested, regardless of his snappy suit, he looks bad. His eyes are absolutely crazed. Whether Howard suffered mental health issues as a child that worsened as he grew into an adult, I don't know. Perhaps his sexuality was the reason for his isolation, all the time spent alone in his room. Maybe his obsession with religion was an effort to rid himself of an attraction society told him was immoral. This is all supposition on my part because his confession is focused on everything done to him by others. His responses to the psychiatric evaluation can't be trusted because of the use of narcosynthesis. And as far as what his brother said about his experiences in the military during the war, I can certainly understand how that could absolutely impact and would impact someone's mental state. But there are thousands, if not millions of veterans across this country and the entire world who do not go out and kill their neighbors. During his confession, Howard Unruh told police he was in complete control of his actions at the start of his killing spree, but that due to the excitement of the moment, the commotion of everything and everyone around him, he shot people he hadn't intended to kill. Some of his victims were premeditated killings, but not all. He told the police he believed he should get the chair, meaning the electric chair, which would have been a death sentence, but Prosecutor Mitchell prevented that from happening. I want to take a few minutes to go back to Charles Cohen, who, when he was just 12 years old, lost his family, his mother, his father, and his grandmother. After the shooting, Charles was taken to the hospital, he was sedated, and soon thereafter lived with a cousin's family until he joined the military. His daughters, Mary and Robin, talked about how important family was to their father. He'd lost the only family he'd known at such a young age building a family of his own, caring for and protecting that family meant everything to their father, Charles Cohen. Gunfire happened and when I walked out, my grandmother was holding a phone in bed dead with blood coming out of her nose and face. He hid in the closet feeling totally helpless and he had to come out and see that horrible scene. Over the years, Charles attended hearings where Howard Unruh requested leniency. The issue there was, if at any point Howard denied being insane or was proven not to be insane, then he would be considered fit to stand trial and would be tried for 13 murders. 
Requesting leniency, in other words, asking to be transferred out of the criminally insane ward at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital, was almost an admission of sanity, which meant he'd stand trial, and it might not have the same result in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s that it had in 1949 when he was ushered off to a mental institution, and eventually Howard realized that and stopped requesting leniency. During my research, I discovered an unbelievably tragic connection to Charles Cohen, who passed away in 2009. Charles' daughter, Mary Cohen Novell, lives in Florida. Her older child, Alex, was a graduate of Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School. On Wednesday, February 14th, 2018, Mary received a text from her daughter, Carly, that she was hiding in a closet at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas hiding from a gunman killing her classmates. Seventy years after her grandfather hid in a closet from a mass shooter, Carly did the same thing. How does that happen? How does that happen in the same family? Carly Noville, Charles Cohen's granddaughter, survived when so many others did not, just like her grandfather in 1949. And I know I'm really emotional here, guys, Part of me wants to stop and try to re-record, do it again, but I'm not going to because I don't know what I would say if I did it again, and I know there are no amount of recordings that I could get through saying that without breaking down because the fact that 70 years later, this man's granddaughter found herself in a similar situation, it's, it's just beyond words. Charles lived with such a burden his entire life. Survivor's guilt, pain, and loss His daughters said every mass murder in this country since September 1949 brought everything back for him. Time magazine featured a study in mass murder over the last 35 years. The number of people killed in a mass murder event, usually a mass shooting, since 1982. It listed the dates, the locations, the numbers went up and down over the years, Some years, there were only four people killed, with many other injured, in mass murder or mass shooting events, as if saying only four people killed makes it a good year. Jesus. But since 2005, the numbers have increased at a staggering rate to the point I had to stop reading, which makes me feel like a coward, but I'll own that, because I couldn't keep looking at the little stick figures that represented every person killed or injured each year in a mass murder event. I said this wasn't an episode about gun control, and it isn't. It's a story about an event that is considered the first mass shooting in our country by a man who lived over the bridge from Philadelphia in Camden, New Jersey. A man who purchased his gun legally at a sporting goods store on Market Street in Philadelphia over 70 years ago. A gun that I look at now, and it looks like an antique. It is an antique, something that makes you wonder if it would even fire, but it did, and it does. This was the story of a man who shattered lives because he believed people were trying to shatter his. It's a story about mental health and a young man who seemed different to his family, to his neighbors. I can't say to his friends because it seemed he had none. He was different, yet similar enough to get by. He was the guy in the neighborhood people thought was odd, whether that's because they believed him to be gay or simply because he was different in other ways and he was called out on his differences. But like we've heard so many times when police and reporters spoke with his mother, his father, his brother, people in the neighborhood, everyone said the same thing. He may have been quiet or different or moody, 
but we never imagined he would do something like this. I'd like to thank Tyler from the Minds of Madness podcast and Jeremy from Podcasts We Listen To for the voiceover work they provided as reporter Philip Buxton and shooter Howard Unruh. Thank you also to Jerry Pauly, co-host of the Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast, for providing the voice of Dr. Minford, the one psychiatrist who believed Howard Unruh was completely aware of what he did, knew it was wrong, and would have been able not only to understand, but absolutely participate in his own defense. Thank you to Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and almost every episode of Twisted Philly Podcast. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com and download her music on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.